Welcome to the Tarrys Community Church Podcast. Enjoy today's episode. Today we're in, um, we've got to that part in Luke where Jesus is um, going to do the Lord's Supper. So we're slowly getting through the book of Luke. If you're new today, we, all this year we've just been... Uh-oh, we right? Yeah, okay. Cool, cool, cool. But today, our Bible reading isn't going to actually come from the book of Luke because we're dealing with the Lord's Supper. I actually decided that we would look at 1 Corinthians. And the reason uh, for that is that there's a Greek word in the passage when Paul's talking about the Last Supper, and I can't pronounce it, but what it does is it provides an explanation of what communion, of what the, the Lord's Supper is all about. And it kind of, the, the word appears in the, in the Corinthians text, but it, when it's translated, it kind of appears in different ways, but it's the original one word. In the, and the word just means to bring together, to connect and so what it does is it, the Lord's Supper, when, when you read it in the original and you read it in, Corinth, in Corinthians, what it's kind of saying is that, that the Lord's Supper brings together things that otherwise would be fragmented. And so today what we're going to look at, we're going to look at what is it that the, the Last Supper, communion, the Eucharist, whatever word you want to put to it, what it actually connects and brings together and the purpose of it and what it does for our soul and our character. Because you can believe, but it actually won't translate into character. It won't won't transform our, our, our soul. And so the communion, the Eucharist, the Last Supper, is an embodied... Um, So what we're going to do is we're going to um, just uh, read 1 Corinthians 11, 17. I think we've got it up there. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I receive from the Lord... What I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. 
This is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. So it's a pretty complicated text in a way, and it's probably Paul's harshest criticism of um, the church. It's one of the harshest words that he has to say to the churches at the time. So but what we're going to do is we're kind of going to look at the... the there's four ways in which the um, Lord's Supper helps us connect. And the first way in which the Lord's Supper helps us to connect is that it helps connect our present to, our, to the past. So the Lord's Supper connects you to the night that Jesus was betrayed. So whenever we're t taking communion or we're talking about the Lord's Supper, we're not talking just about the here and now. We're, we're connecting back to that night when he was betrayed. And the night was a Passover night. It was a Passover meal. It was a, a Jewish celebration. And usually at a Passover meal, one of the kids would ask, why is this night different to any other night? And then there would be an explanation. And the Passover refers to a time in history when the Israelites were being oppressed by the Egyptians and that the leader of the Egyptian empire wouldn't let the Israelites go. And so God decided that he would send an angel of death to release the Israelites, to, to set the Israelites free. And so we kind of have this little taste, this little intervention by God into history where he shows that justice matters to him and that one day there will be justice um, served um, throughout history. But in, in this particular instant, we've got this tiny little glimmer of God's heart for justice. And so God says to the Israelites, if you don't want to um, experience the judgment of the angel of death, you must gather together, you must slaughter a lamb, you must kill the lamb, you must eat the lamb, you must do it together, and then the blood of the lamb you were to paint on the doorposts of the, of the doors of your houses. And if the blood is there, then the angel of death will bypass your house and you will be free, and then you will be set free. And so that's what happened. And then Moses, what Moses did is he instituted the Passover as a yearly celebration in memory of the fact that the Israelites were liberated, that they were released from oppression, that they had um, been protected under the blood of the Lamb. And Moses gave really strict instructions that it wasn't to change, that they weren't to change any component of the Passover meal. So on this particular night, when Jesus is about to be betrayed, they are having the Passover, and Jesus is presiding over the Passover. So he's in charge of, of executing the Passover on this particular night, and he begins to change the Passover, which was a pretty audacious, radical thing that he did. It was in direct contravention of Jewish custom and of what Moses had instituted. And so he gets up and he starts to talk about the bread. And instead of saying, this is the bread of our affliction, which we ate in the wilderness, he says, this is my body, 
when, he, when it comes to the wine, he says, this is my blood, my blood of my affliction. And there was no lamb at this particular supper. So there's some major changes that are going on here. And the early, the prophets um, had prophesied, they understood that the lamb um, that was slain back at the time of Egypt, that that didn't, that didn't save the Israelites from their sins. They understood that it was a symbol of a lamb that was yet to come, the, that the lamb that was slaughtered was, um, yeah, just a symbol, and that um, what Jesus was about to do was kind of like the fulfillment of what happened in Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, he writes this, about this particular night and about what's going to happen. But the fact is, it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him, our sins. He took the punishment and that made us whole. Through his bruises we get healed. We're all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, gone our own way, and God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong on him, on him. He was beaten, he was tortured, but he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered and like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence. Justice miscarried and he was let off. And did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare, beaten bloody for the sins of my people. So those lambs didn't take the sins of the Israelites. They represented someone else. And at the Last Supper, Jesus is saying at the Last Supper, he's saying, I am he. I am the fulfillment of all that the prophets have said. I am he. I am the lamb who will take away the sins of the world. My death is going to be the climactic event in history. It's going to separate history into two. It will, it will change everything. Tonight, I'm not just going to liberate you from some little problem that you might be experiencing in your life and your world. Tonight is the night that I'm going to deal with sin and death once and for all. And so when we take the bread and when we take the cup, there's a direct connection between what happened on that night and with your present, it was a night when you had the opportunity to be saved. And so when we take it, we take it with that significance, with that understanding that this represents what happened way back then. It connects us to the past. It connects us to what happened on that night. But it also connects your heart to God so when Jesus says, this is my body and hands the bread, and when he says, this is my blood and hands the wine, he's actually making a very profound statement. He's saying, I'm accessible. I am accessible to you. I'm giving myself to you. I'm connecting with you. From now on, I am accessible to you. I'm giving myself to you. This is me I'm giving. I'm wanting communion with you. I'm wanting a deep connection with you. Now, I don't know about you, but I just think that whole concept should blow your mind. It's a pretty radical thought that there's a God that actually wants to connect 
with your heart that wants to connect with you. Catholics believe that when you receive the bread and the wine, you are literally getting the body of Jesus. So when you take the bread and the wine, you are actually being saved. So this is why um, when a Catholic is dying, the part of the last rite is to actually administer communion because they believe that by administering communion, in that moment, you are actually eating his, his body and drinking his blood and that, that blood and that uh, body is actually saving you. Now, Penny, um, Protestants have a different viewpoint in that they say that communion was simply symbolic, that, that it's a symbol of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Now, there are problems with both viewpoints, and I think the truth is somewhere in the middle, and I think that the truth is mystery, and we won't all, always understand it this side of heaven. So for Catholics, when they claim that this is the body of Jesus broken and that it's the literal eating of his blood and his body, it's a little bit difficult because at the time when Jesus said that, his body wasn't broken and his blood hadn't been spilled. And so in my mind, I go, it had to be a, a symbolic rather than an actual saving thing that's happening here. Also, throughout the, the, especially the Gospel of John, you constantly see John saying that belief is, in, is what um, saves you. It, it's belief that um, gives you eternal life. You believe in Jesus and you will get eternal life. And the classic one there would be John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So for me, the position of the Catholics is problematic on those two grounds. For Protestants, though, for Protestants, what we've done with communion is we've kind of sort of relegated it to the same place as prayer or reading our Bible, that it has no more significance than that. It has no more power than that. And I don't think that that's 100% accurate either. In John 6, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give you for the life of the world. Now, when Jesus said this, many people got offended and they left and there were others who began to question. So in this passage, he seems to be alluding to concepts that are happening in the Last Supper. I want you to feed off me. But I think what he's saying is I want you to feed off my words. I don't want you just to believe I loved you, that I died for you. I want you to actually digest the fact that I want a connection with you, that I've died for you, that I love you, that I want to do life with you, that I am the son of God. I want you to digest that. And so when we come to take the communion, it's, a, it's an embodied remembering. So on your tables, you've got there a, a little diagram. Just ignore a lot of the wording there, but you'll see that um, the heart, we're told to guard our heart, and our heart is made up of mind, soul, and will. And so Protestants kind of, when we say the communion's just a symbol, we're just engaging just the mind. 
in our thinking, but it's more than that. When we actually take communion, we're actually engaging the soul and the will, and we're kind of doing something with our bodies. We're enacting something with our bodies. We're actually saying, I want to digest the truth of communion. I want to digest the truth that Jesus died for my sin. I want to digest, I want to eat, I want to, I want to remember. So it's more than a head thing. It's something we're doing with our will, and it's something we're doing with our soul. We're meant to feel it. We're meant to experience it. We're meant to remember it. The word remember in in, um, our language has lost a lot of its meaning because we kind of think uh, remembrance means just recall. But it actually means more than that. When we... When we use the word uh, remember, it actually means to dismember. And when we think about dismember, we're thinking about dismembering body parts, you know, hands, limbs, parts of our bodies being dismembered. So member means a body part. And so to remember doesn't just mean to recall, to, to recall, it means to graft, it means to fuse, it means to take something that is not part of our being and to make it a part of our being. And so when we're taking the, the bread and the wine, it's not just a head thing. It's not just, oh, I believe this. It's kind of like, I really want to digest this. I want to experience this with my soul. I want to I experience this with my will. I want to experience this with my mind. And um, I think that this is where Jesus is kind of saying to us, um, he wants us to eat and drink everything of him. He's wanting us to engage fully in it. So for me, that's what communion means. I I sit in the middle between the Catholic and the Protestant viewpoint. Thirdly, I think that communion connects individuals to community. When Paul wrote this passage that we read to the church at Corinth, there were so many divisions in that church. Pride and ego (laughs) were so present. There were party lines based on class, there were party lines based on race, there were party lines based on gender. There was so much division. And the Lord's Supper back then was celebrated at the end of the service and it was an actual meal. You actually bought the food and you would eat together. And next year we're we're just toying with the idea at the moment about uh, doing communion this way where we actually just, one Sunday a month, we just have a meal together and see one another. And so the idea was that you would, at the end of the service, you would sit and you would have a full meal and you would see one another, you would, you would connect with one another. But in this passage that we read, we read that so many of the people that were coming were disdainful of one another. Some would bring their food, they'd quickly eat, and then they'd leave so they didn't have to connect or talk with anybody. Others ate so much they got drunk. Others, the poor came and they had nothing. They had nothing to eat. They had, they had nothing. So they just sat there with no food and nobody sharing the food. And Paul's just ripping his hair out. He's so disdainful of this and he's saying, that is not the Lord's Supper. That is not taking communion. If you cannot love your neighbour, if you cannot see people, that is not the Lord's Supper. You are not participating in the Lord's Supper. You are you're participating in something else other than that. 
And so when we take communion, we come at it and we come at it seeing the bride of Christ, seeing community, seeing one another. And it was actually, I think communion was one of the major reasons why the church just exploded was because it was so radical because you had, you had lepers eating with rich people. You had the poor eating with the rich. You had women sitting at the table eating with... with um, um, upper-class, wealthy uh, men. It, it, it turned the world upside down because you had so many different people who up until that point wouldn't have anything to do with one another and here they are sitting, eating a meal together, remembering that it was by grace, it was Jesus' act on the cross and nothing that they had done. It wasn't their wealth, it wasn't their money, it wasn't how free they were of sickness, it wasn't because they were men, it wasn't because they were an adult that they were saved, it was because of what Jesus had done and they would sit there at the communion table and they would see one another. It was radical. It was radical. But so often we come, and I think we've come a long way from the original Lord's Supper. You know, for those of you, um, during The Voice, I loved what I learned during The Voice. I, um, and this, this isn't a statement about how the referendum worked out. It's got nothing to do with that. For me, I went into that and I said, God, teach me how to love. Oh, this is a group of people that I don't know enough about. I don't have a lot of connection with. Will you teach me? Will you use these few weeks to teach me about the pain of the First Nations, the struggles they have? Help me to listen. Help me to see who they are. I want to come out of this period with a greater compassion and mercy. And when Tim Costello was here, he, he taught me some history that I didn't know he was talking about our first governor of Tasmania, George Arthur. And Governor Arthur was a Calvinist evangelist, uh, evangelical. So he was a Christian. And so he comes and he's the governor and um, he actually started the Black War, which is Australia's most violent conflict in our history. And at the end of that Black War, there was one Indigenous person left in 1876. And he was acting from this belief that one group of people, um, an evolutionary Darwinism kind of idea, that one group of people were more civilised and more together <laughs> than another group of people. So he, he genuinely believed that white people were more civilised, that, that we were more evolved, that you know, our thinking, our values, we were more Christian, we were more... all this stuff. And it led him to start Australia's most violent conflict within our borders. What, that, that kind of thinking kept bearing fruit and we saw the fruit of that in the Holocaust. That's that thinking, that one group of people are better than another group of people. But, but when it happened with the, um, the, the Black War, it was like a mini holocaust in our own nation by a Christian. And I think if Paul was offering um, Governor Arthur communion, I think he would say what he's saying to the Corinthians, he's saying, what the heck are you doing? 
What are you doing? These are God's children. What are you doing? What are you thinking of doing? This is so wrong. Because everybody is welcome to the table. Everybody. Christ died for everybody. And so when we come to the communion table, we have to come with that idea. And I think we have to come, we have to go LGBTQ, First Nations, Palestinians, Israelites, Russians, Ukrainian, Chinese. We have to have the posture of Jesus Christ who said on that night, I am dying for every single one of you and it's on the basis of grace. It is not on the basis of what you do or who you are or what you've accumulated or what you do. So when you come to communion, you come from that place of grace. Now, I know that there are families in this room who don't really want to have much to do with other families. There are families here who won't invite other families into your home. I would say to you, Paul would rip his hair out and he would say, that is not communion, that is not recognising the bride of Christ. That is not what Jesus is about. Jesus is about everyone is welcome at the table because I have died for everybody at the table. And so when we take communion, this is what we are doing. For me, the thing with Arthur that I didn't know was that under the influence of Wilberforce, he repented. He, he, he broke down and like John Newton, that great slave trader who, who um, realised that selling black bodies wasn't what Jesus wanted and he broke down and he wrote that amazing song called Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. George Arthur did the same. And in his repentance, he wrote to the, the governor who was going to be starting in South um, Australia and he begged, he begged him, do it differently. Form a treaty with these people. Treat them as equals. Love them. Care for them. Treat them as you would treat one another. And the governor said, no, white people have the right to make money just as much in South Australia as they are in Tasmania, Victoria and New South Wales. This man had this metanoia, this repentance kind of experience where he realised how far away he was from Jesus' concept of, of or not concept, but what he was trying to institute through the Lord's Supper and through his death and through his resurrection. I kind of go, for me personally, I think that we have drifted so far, so far from the original gospel and we need to examine our hearts very seriously and kind of go, is my heart reflecting the heart of Jesus? This week I served lunch, <laughs> dinner, to a man who a number of years ago wanted to punch me. It took everything he took to not punch me. He's a pastor. His pastor at the time, and he, he, just wanted to, he just wanted to punch me in the face. He was so angry with me. And um, it was hard. It was hard having to cook, having to spend money, my money, not church's money, my money on food for him, to feed him, to then sit with him and have a conversation which was more about him than me, to ask how he was going, and to have nothing in my heart that um, wanted to do him harm, to have just mercy and compassion and genuine love. So for me, I feel like 
this is the constant challenge for us is kind of like, it's easy to say we love people, but when we come to the communion table and if we're practicing a life of communion, then it's this constant, what's my heart? Is it reflecting who Jesus was or is it reflecting my culture? Is it reflecting my religious culture? Am I being like the Pharisees and Sadducees, claiming I love Jesus, but really in my heart, I'm not really loving people? Or am I genuinely trying to practice the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's hard, but I think that that's the invitation of communion. And then finally, communion connects your life story to the future. When you take communion, you proclaim his death until he comes. What will Jesus bring? He'll bring a supper, a feast, something that will celebrate the new. In Revelations it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. When Jesus comes again, what will he bring? He'll bring a supper. He'll bring a feast. He'll bring something that celebrates the new kingdom, the fullness of the kingdom. And when we get to heaven, the new heaven and the new earth, the deepest longings of our heart will be met. There'll be no more tears, no more pain, no more gap, no more discontent, no more sadness, no more division, no more conflict, no more, no more of what this world has. And what he's saying at the communion table, he's saying what you're experiencing now is the entree of what's to come. And this is my commitment. My commitment tonight is, is that what I'm going to do is going to get you from there to there. This is my commitment. So communion connects us to the future. In The Lord of the Rings, there's this scene where um, one of the cities is being besieged and Pippin is in um, the city and he's convinced he's going to die. And then all of a sudden he hears the horns of Rohan. And next minute all these knights, they come rushing into the city. And many of them die, but the city is saved. And in the book, not the movie, but in the book it says that from that day on, Pippin, every time he heard the sound of the horn, he would burst into tears. He would just cry. Because he remembered those who had died for him and who had saved him and who had given him life. And also, he also, um, just it, for him, it was his night of salvation that he had been saved. And so whenever he heard the horn, he would burst into tears because he would remember. And even if he was in a grumpy mood, as soon as he heard a horn, he couldn't help but smile and laugh because of what had been done for him. For us, communion is the horn. Every time we take it, it's the horn. It reminds us of what Jesus has done and it reminds us of the life that he is calling us into. It reminds us of all the sin that he took and it reminds us that there's this glorious, eternal future yet to come.
And so for me, when we unpack the passage in Corinthians, this is, this is the, the connecting points and these are the things. So when we take communion and we understand this, it changes us, it forms us. It takes, in, in Western world, we spend so much time in our mind. We think so long as we've got the right truth that we're going to come out the right way. Didn't happen for, for our first governor. He had, he had thinking in there. He believed that Jesus was this, but his soul and his will hadn't been uh, moulded, his character. He'd, he drifted from, from, from the gospel. And so this is what communion does. When we, we, it's a physical taking and it's supposed to change us in our soul and our will and our mind. And so what we're going to do now is we're just going to take it. If you feel comfortable, come and take it. We're just going to play a, um, a song um, for you to just listen to. In, in your own time, you come, you take the, the communion elements, and bring your heart, bring your will, and just have this time. You take it when you're ready, and you have a conversation with God about all the beautiful things that he connects connected and, and, and does a communion. Let me just um, pray and then we'll just go into communion. Oh, Heavenly Father, I just thank you. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you that Jesus, you loved us so much. That your kingdom is so different and we have drifted so far from your kingdom. We reflect more of our world than the kingdom that you represent and that you're trying to institute on planet Earth. And for that, we're sorry. We're sorry for the times that we don't see who you are, for the times we don't understand that you are Son of God, who chose to die, who was resurrected. Sorry for the, for the times that we don't see people, one another. And we put people through all these hoops. We judge. Forgive us. Blow our minds. Help us in this repentance place of just seeing who you are and seeing your kingdom, that which is both here now and that which is to come. So Holy Spirit, just come. Do a work inside of us. Help us to have our minds blown. I pray this in your precious name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We hope that you've enjoyed the message and that it's had great impact on you. If you want prayer, would like to connect with us further, or you just have questions, we would love to chat. You can find us at www.tarescommunitychurch.com.au or you can find us on Facebook. Have a great week.